0: Welcome to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NELA Illinois, the podcast that discusses the policies, regulations, and laws that affect our workplaces, presented primarily from the perspective of employee or plaintiff side lawyers. We are your hosts, Amit Bindra and Max Barrett. We are members of the board of directors of NILA Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who empower workplace rights.
1: Welcome back to Employee to Lawyer, the Employment Law Podcast. Happy New Year to everybody. If this is coming out in January of 22, when we record it, we are your hosts. I'm Max
0: Barrick. And I'm Amit Bender. There's sirens in the background, so I muted myself for a second.
1: And we are today very, very excited to be speaking with a wonderful guest, Jennifer Mondino, who is the Director of Legal Programs for the Time's Up Legal Defense Fund with the National Women's Law Center. Jennifer, her biography will be in our show notes, and you can also check out the Times Up Network's website. But just briefly, Jennifer also spent eight years working as a senior trial attorney with the Special Litigation Section of the Civil Rights Division for the U.S. Department of Justice. Jennifer, welcome, and thank you so much for making time for us.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's such a treat and an honor to be with you all today.
1: The honor and pleasure is all ours. Jennifer, let's just jump right in. Can you tell everybody listening what the Times Up Legal Defense Fund is and what the Legal Network for Gender Equity is?
2: Yeah, I am so happy to get to tell you all about this. Like I said, it really is such an honor and a treat to be able to talk to you all. One of one of my personal and professional missions these days is to try to tell people, but especially the kinds of folks that will be in your audience, all about the Time's Up Legal Defense Fund and the Legal Network for Gender Equity. So I'm really happy to tell you all about it, but I will, I will step back for a second and, and explain all the different organizations that I'm connected to maybe because it, it turns into a bit of an alphabet soup. So I am a lawyer with the National Women's Law Center and National Women's Law Center is a Gender justice advocacy organization that has been around since the early 70s and is working on all kinds of gender justice issues in the courts and in policy and in narrative change and all sorts of things. If you all could see me, you could see that I'm wearing my, I'm proudly wearing my National Women's Law Center shirt. One of the things that the National Women's Law Center does, maybe one of the newest things that it does, is house and administer the Time Stop Legal Defense Fund and the Legal Network for Gender Equity, two separate things that together have the same mission of connecting people who have experienced sex harassment in the workplace with justice in different ways. And they each started around around the same time. They each started around January, 2018, okay? And January, 2018, Used to seem like a moment ago. So many things have happened in the last couple of years. But if, if you all think back to that moment, it, this was a moment when hashtag Me Too had just gone viral. And we were really at this moment of cultural reckoning in this country, starting to really think about and talk about sexual misconduct in the workplace, largely fueled by high-profile allegations like the ones against Harvey Weinstein, but but also people talking about it in in all different industries, all different parts of the country and world even later, and all walks of life, right? And if if you all let me digress for a moment, I I love part of the the creation story of of the Time's Up Legal Defense Fund. I mean, all of this is happening at that time with Hollywood and Harvey Weinstein and all of these things, but there is this moment where this group of farm workers organized by this, this organization called Alianza Nacional de Campesinas, writes this letter, an open letter, a public letter, to these women of Hollywood, and they address them as sisters. They say, dear sisters, right? And say, you know, we are, we are farm workers. We are people working in the fields. But but we see you, we hear what's happening to you and we recognize it because we have been dealing with the same things, the same types of inequities, the same types of power imbalances, the same struggles with, with sexual violence as you are. And we stand with you in solidarity to fight against these issues. So I think it's such a powerful and beautiful moment, right, where you have people in in these very different worlds that are, are living the same struggles and saying, like, let's band together and do something about it, right? So... In that moment, there was a you know a group of of folks, some really powerful people. One of them was our, our current president and CEO at the National Women's Law Center, Fatima Goss Graves. There were also some other high profile lawyers who got together with some folks in Hollywood and said, like, what are we gonna do with this moment? And one of the things that they did was create the Times Up Legal Defense Fund and raise a lot of money, which you know, I I, I bet like lawyers in, in your audience might appreciate if you've been doing you know social justice work, civil rights work for a while. What a what a treat and an incredible situation it is to, to suddenly have a, a big pile of money to be able to do that kind of righteous work with. And that was sort of the idea here. They they raised at the beginning upwards of, of $20 million. There has been fundraising since then, but that still ends up being the, the core of what the, the fund is. And, and that was the start of it. So around that same time, we, the National Women's Law Center had also created this network, which they called the Legal Network for Gender Equity. And that is this network of volunteer attorneys. And, and the idea with that at the time was to get volunteer lawyers together to fight against these rollbacks of civil rights protections that were happening under the the previous administration, right? And and also fill in some gaps, like there had been more robust federal government enforcement of civil rights laws in previous administrations, and that wasn't happening. So there was an idea of trying to get people together to do something about that, and, and that led to this legal network for gender equity. So when they started this Times Up legal defense fund, the folks who started it came to the National Women's Law Center and said, you know, what if we built off of what you did and and put these things together and put this legal made this legal network for gender equity even even more robust and put this Times Up legal defense fund within your organization, the National Women's Law Center. I love that part of the story too because at the time our 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 president and CEO, Fatima Gaspers, who was who's a powerhouse, was pretty new to the role. And, and it was not a small ask to have them come and say, you know, can we put this, this gigantic new, you know, untested project in your organization? Will you all run it and figure it all out? And to her credit, she said yes. And, and that was the beginning of it. And, and sometime later, they started, you know, doing it and also hiring up some, some staff and, and I was, you know, one of the, one of the first folks in that team. So I've, I've been on the team pretty much since the beginning.
0: I really wish the audience could see you say all that. The passion just comes off, like your hand movements, everything. It was, I don't know. I'm just watching you. I'm inspired. It's a cool story. It's a really (laughs) powerful story.
2: You, i'm glad that you're not gonna make me tell it again keeping my <laughs> hands still because that's not something that i do well
1: oh where's the fun in that if you don't get yeah. excited
2: telling <laughs> right
1: <laughs> for somebody who's as excited and passionate about what you do if we made you be censored and like sit there calmly explaining it that story doesn't it doesn't tell that story the same way so there's a lot of different there's a lot of different organizations that you described in there, and I appreciate that because I've been a volunteer. I, I've been taking intakes every now and again for the Legal Network for Gender Equity, but candidly, I've been mm-hmm. personally ignorant as to which, which organization is which and how they all interact together. I sort of all thought they were the same thing, so I appreciate you
0: parsing that out. And just yeah. so I understand it then. Is, is the, so you have the fund. Does that do advocacy work? Does it do just legal work? Is it just fundraising to help the legal aid section?
2: It's a great question. So there are there are four main things that the that the fund does, that the Times Up Legal Defense Fund does, and we could talk about them a lot more. But the, the overview of it is: the first one is connecting individuals who have experienced sex discrimination, including sex harassment in the workplace, with legal help with lawyers, and that's where this legal network for gender equity comes in. Right. So an individual worker out in the world can reach out to us, and tell us about their situation, and we will connect those folks to attorneys that have signed up for this legal network for gender equity. So that's the connecting individuals to to lawyers pieces, you know, simple but powerful, because it can be really, really challenging for people to to find lawyers to even know how to go about doing that. So that was the idea there is, is bridging that gap. Second thing that the Times Up Legal Defense Fund does has to do with the money, right? So one of the things that we do is give out money to cover attorney's fees and costs in legal matters that involve workplace sex harassment. So a lot of times, both of those things will come into play. Personally, I love it when that happens, because it feels like we are really doing what we set out to do. But it could happen that a worker reaches out to us, tells us their story, and and we then connect them to a lawyer in the legal network. In, in practice, what happens is we will send them names and contact information for three lawyers in the legal network who practice where the worker is. And then it's up to the worker to decide what to do, right? People are coming to us at, at all different stages of what has happened to them. So they may, they may do nothing. They may wait quite a while before they reach out to people. They may reach out right away to all three. But the idea is that when they reach out to those lawyers, those lawyers have agreed to. Do a free initial legal consultation with that person, right? At least that, and and just that can be, I think, transformative. But let's say that they then decide to work together as lawyer and client. They could then come to us and apply for funding to cover fees and costs in the in in whatever legal action they're considering. And that I think is it's another important piece because you know, it can be really difficult for people to to know lawyers, to find lawyers, to know what their options are. But then another incredible barrier to people accessing justice is being able to pay for it, right? So, So sometimes we're doing both of those things. The other two main things that the fund is doing is connecting people who are in situations involving workplace sex harassment with public relations assistance, with Sometimes we call it media and storytelling assistance to just make it a little more digestible and it, it works in a similar way we have a we have a network of public relations professionals who have agreed to work with us in this way and we have money that we give out to pay for their services. I you know it may be the case for for people listening too I you know I'm I'm a civil rights lawyer I'm a women's rights lawyer I didn't know as much about this whole public relations world when I came to the fund as other things you know you all mentioned that I spent a long time at the at the justice department at, at the justice department if you're a lawyer you're actually like not supposed to have anything to do with the press you get kind of you get kind of brainwashed and trained to like not answer questions and direct everybody to the folks who are supposed to talk to the press so that was newer for me but I have found it to be incredible for people, right? Like there are so many different reasons that people might want that kind of help as opposed to legal help. Like maybe they, you know, they're, they're out of time for a legal case or or they don't want to bring a legal case or they already are getting smeared in the public because of some legal matter they've done. Like there are all kinds of reasons that what people are really looking for is a way to tell their story or help managing their story. And I have, definitely known people in this role who have had their cases turned around and and really their, their sort of personal lives turned around by having somebody really guide them in telling their story. So that part of what we're doing, I think has been quite incredible too. And then the last piece of, of what the fund does, the main things that the fund does is we have given out money to 18 community-based worker focused organizations to, and these are groups all over the country and money to do outreach and education about workplace sex harassment. And they're extremely cool. Like it's, it's such an exciting part of what we have done and they are, you know, they have different focuses. So some of them are working with immigrant communities, LGBTQ youth, nail salon workers. We, we have, you all are in Illinois. We had an organization, Healing to Action in Chicago, that was one of the, the groups that had our outreach grantee, outreach grants. And they did really interesting work, training worker leaders to go out in their communities and train about these issues. Some of the things that these groups have done have been really, really incredible.
0: That's super cool. So when you essentially fund litigation, is is that just someone goes through an application process and they meet whatever criteria, you know, you clear the money. Are you then essentially supervising that litigation or the d- attorneys call and they kind of run the show at that point? How does that work?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So yes, it's, it's an application process. It's, it's a competitive application process and, you know, we can't guarantee funding for everybody that applies, but, but we really and truly are looking to give out this money. I I have had some, you know, Frankly, really funny conversations with people where they're like, "Wait a second, like you really are telling me that you have this pot of money and you want to give it to me to like bring this case the way that I want to bring it," and and yes, like that is what we sh- wish to do. But yeah, there's an application process, and 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 attorneys have to be the ones submitting the applications. so they have to give us a good amount of information about the case, and so we have a review process that we that we go through to decide which ones to fund and how much to fund. And and we have criteria that, you know, I, I could point you all to the application board, but we have criteria that we have set that are not requirements for a case, but they are describing the types of cases that we are, the most excited to fund. And so some of them for example are cases involving low wage workers. That that is definitely one of the focuses of the Times Up Legal Defense Fund. Not not all of the folks that we are supporting are low wage workers, but those are the folks that that's our mission, right? is is to do that. So that's a big part of it. But there are other things too like we are excited about funding cases where there are workers in traditionally male-dominated industries like construction or law enforcement or or things like that. Cases where there's a pattern of harassment or there are really serious power imbalances. I would say maybe some of the cases that that we have supported where they aren't low-wage workers are, are the ones that might come to mind where, you know, these are really powerful folks that they're going up against, and that's why it can make a big difference to have money backing you to kind of balance the scales a bit and and make that fight a possible fight. So those are some of the criteria. Then, if we decide to to fund a matter, we're we're definitely not supervising the litigation. Like, you know, it it is it is the attorneys and and the, with their clients that are running the show. But folks who have funding from us do have to do some regular reporting to tell us what's happening with the case. And, and I would say that I think that this is a nice thing about having funding from us or or being in the legal network is it does end up being a bit of i I'm thinking brain trust. Like I, I am very often having lawyers who have funding from us or who are in the legal network reaching out to us and saying, you know what, like I need an expert on this type of issue, or I, I really could use, an advocacy organization to give me these kinds of resources? Or can you connect me to somebody who has done this kind of case before? Something like that. And because we are connected to really wonderful attorneys and advocacy organizations and, and advocates across the country, a lot of times we are able to, it's almost like being a matchmaker sometimes, I think, like perform the sort of matchmaking function where we're putting people together to be able to do their work better. and And then also, some of my my colleagues, at the philosopher, might be like, oh, I was "Like, how much are you advertising this?" But you know, I I started out telling you all like I work at the National Women's Law Center, so I am part of this fantastic gender justice advocacy organization, and have all these brilliant colleagues who are doing amicus briefs and legislative advocacy and other things. So sometimes we end up connecting folks to that kind of thing as well, and and that can sometimes be a really terrific partnership.
1: Is the funding, and I realize I, I could just go check out the application, and I think everybody can hear my my 16-month-old in the background yelling Dada in the other room. So apologies <laughs> to our listeners. Daria's made a few appearances, especially the Friday night recordings. One time, I think she knocked off my microphone. But uh, sorry, I derailed it. So in, in terms of the funding, does it ever have anything to do with the attorney's situation? So is it ever about, well, I'd love to take this case on, but we're just not set up to do contingency work, or we'd love to, but we can't go to war against this. This army, you know, alone. How does how does that factor into it too?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. The attorneys definitely factor into it. So part of the application process is, you know, we're assessing the case, but also assessing the attorneys. So you know, the attorneys have to give us professional references and and that kind of thing, and also tell us about their plans for their legal claims and their strategy so that's part of what we're assessing so that's in there but then part of what i was hearing in your question is is kind of the attorney circumstance and yeah that is something that we are definitely considering and that i hear about a lot and and i think it'd be really powerful like oftentimes i would say we will have folks who are solo practitioners or you know the finances of of their practice don't allow them to bring all the more, you know, low wage worker, social justice, pro bono type cases that they would like to, and the funding makes that possible. You know, and and that will be part of their application, explaining to us why they need the funding, and that's definitely part of what we're considering.
0: Well, my favorite part is the phrase you use, a brain trust. It just seems yeah. like a great way for attorneys to talk to other attorneys who know this stuff really well, and just to bounce ideas off of each other, and for you to kind of connect all the players together.
2: Yeah, I, I think that it really, it really has been that. I mean, you all are, you know, connected to to your Neela chapter, and that that can be such a wonderful resource, right? But not everybody is in that, and and it also can be, you know, be focused on your state or maybe focused on the people that you tend to know. So, I I think sometimes we end up connecting people in different parts of the country, or or maybe connecting people in different types of practice, or to advocacy organizations like partnerships that they don't already have that can be really useful especially when you're working with the kinds of folks that we're trying to support right like you know by just by the nature of what we're doing like these are folks who are are dealing with trauma these are these are survivors and so one thing is okay you know the their employment lawsuit or whatever their civil claims might be but but folks often need a lot of other kinds of supports too so I think it can be helpful to have folks who can give advice about how to provide that and that's something that we try to think about a lot is is giving attorneys in our network you know resources for how they can support the survivors that they're working with and and information because you know you can get caught up in your in your legal practice and and maybe not be as well versed in that or not know how to go about you know, Finding mental health services, or finding somebody to help with the immigration claims, or you know, training about how to be more more trauma informed and survivor centered in in the way that you're interacting with the folks that you meet.
1: So that's a that's a good segue. Um, can you explain maybe the Cliff Notes version for the uninitiated what trauma informed advocacy means, and then. You know, dovetail, uh, it's a running joke. I always ask compound questions that would never fly in a Depper <laughs> trial and and why that is important for representing. I, I like the term you, you're, I think, consciously probably using survivors rather than, say, victims in, in this process.
2: Yeah, we do think of it as really, really important. And, you know, for for folks in the legal network, we actually have it as a requirement for being a part of the network that you have to you have to take some kind of training in what we call trauma informed legal advocacy. And and you can satisfy this training by by watching recordings of some webinars that we have organized about that topic or in other ways. But but we did that really deliberately because we think it's incredibly important. The folks that are the folks that are coming to us for help are people that have dealt with some kind of trauma, right? Like the trauma of being harassed at work. But but very oftentimes other kinds of trauma too, right? Like it, it might be that that harassment was compounded by discrimination against them for other reasons, their race or their sexual orientation or their disability. It may be that they, very often, that they have other kinds of sexual violence that they are dealing with or dealt with in the past. And it's getting brought to the surface by what's happening to them at work, all of that. And so it can be, it can be complicated, for an attorney for an advocate to navigate that right like there are ways that somebody dealing with all that trauma can present or describe their situation or resist working with an advocate or you know things that don't function in the way that a lawyer always wants to do things right like maybe you want to you want to have the quick call with somebody and and rattle through your questions and get your bullet points and figure out what your claims are and kind of do it really quickly and fit it all into that you know, like 15, 30 minute phone call that you had expected to have. Like that is probably not going to happen with most of the folks that are coming to us. And we think that it's really important that people be prepared for that so that they can be well-serving the folks that are coming to them for help.
1: Well, it's interesting too, when you bring that up, because I, so my first law job was at a firm that did almost exclusively only hostile work environment litigation. It was a nationwide firm. They were really selective about the cases. So, I remember from when I did that that, you know, these were not simple conversations, right? And you can't have these conversations all at once, but not only that, getting somebody who's been through that ready for example for a deposition when you might have a really hostile and deliberately or or unintentionally triggering defense counsel who's grilling this person who's been through something horrific. I think it's an incredible credit to your organizations, plural, that that is part of this, right? Because getting people like that who've been through something like that ready for what they're going to go through in the legal process is, is is a big chunk of it, I think.
2: Absolutely. A- absolutely. Like, it, it's, a, it's an important part of being a good lawyer in this, right? Like, you are going to have to prepare them for something that could be really difficult and brutal, like when they get, you know, cross-examined, all the kinds of questions that they're going to be asked on the other side, like the you know, expert witnesses, all of the things. And in order to prepare somebody for that, you've got to know their story, right? And to get their story, you've got to establish some trust. And if you have folks who are dealing with trauma, that can that can take some more, a, a different approach, a trauma-informed approach to kind of establish that trust and bring people out and make them feel safe and supported and secure enough to open up to you and share those things with you.
0: And you mentioned this a little bit before, too, about how like the initial consultation, just a free conversation can sometimes be very valuable, I think, for the person who's not the attorney calling the attorney. Do you have just, you know, let's say we have attorneys listening who aren't necessarily part of the Time's Up legal network, but they still get these calls or have these clients. Do you have advice or suggestions on how we all can be better when we're handling these situations as attorneys?
2: Oh well, go uh, please, please, please! Like tell your folks to check out some trainings. Like we have some recorded trainings on our website; they're terrific. We are going to be putting some other ones on later this year. There, there are so there's so many good trainers and good advice about things that you can do. I think, but you know, I I have found in in my years working with with this fund even that it it continuously surprises me how powerful that initial legal consultation can be, I think, and maybe people in your, in your audiences will resonate with them, you know, like, you get kind of in your lawyer mindset, you, it feels good if you're able to, like, do something about it, right? Like, I want to be able to, like, bring the claim for you, like, win the, like, do the things, right? And so if, All I'm doing is just hearing your story. And then maybe after the story, I'm like, oh, you don't have a claim or like you're out of time, whatever it is. It doesn't feel like it it doesn't feel like you're doing the things and it doesn't feel that satisfying. It can be that way. But I keep having these experiences where I will end up having, you know, like an extended tough conversation with a survivor who's telling me their whole story. And they will be so moved and so appreciative at having somebody they perceive, I'll I'll be frank, I think this will be true for folks in your audience too, who they perceive as having some power, right? Some power and some authority, somebody who really listened to them and and believed them and took it seriously. Even when I am telling them, you know, when I'm having these conversations, I'm always telling people, like, I am, you know, I am listening to you to try to think about who I can connect you to. I am not going to be your lawyer. So I'm giving them all the caveats. So even when I'm telling them, like, I am not going to represent you, or maybe you're out of time or whatever the thing is. Just that moment, just like you listened, you believed me, you took it seriously, you person who seems powerful and seems to know what's going on can be, it can be incredible. So yeah, I I think just, just realizing how weighty that can be, like that, that the small can be big, you know, like asking the open-ended questions, seeming like you are hearing the person saying some empathetic things where you're telling them that you are sorry that they had to deal with the things that they had to deal with. It, in the moment, it can feel like not that much because you're not doing the things, but I think that it can be incredible for folks.
0: Yeah. I think sometimes it gets lost in attorneys that you have to be human too. And yeah. so,
2: <laughs> We don't get trained in that, right?
0: No, we don't. I mean, Max <laughs> and I talk about this on other podcast episodes too, about a lot of times we wear multiple hats as attorneys and that's one hat we sometimes lose is You're listening to someone's story, someone who's gone through some really, really difficult stuff and they just need someone to listen.
1: Mm -hmm. We, We joke we're all we we split our time as part-time attorneys and part-time unlicensed therapists sort of helping manage (laughs) right people through i mean helping navigate people through some really challenging situations and that's um, so
0: cool that you have trainings we'll definitely put that in our show notes um because i think it's so valuable for attorneys to watch those webinars listen to that type of stuff especially if you're doing employment law or really any type of law I think I think you all came to Neela Nationals Conference
1: when it was in Chicago. I don't remember. I, I'm embarrassed. I don't remember who came from the organization that year, but I'm pretty sure that's at least how I learned you all existed was I think whenever it was, was that a 18 I meant that it was here?
0: That sounds right. Yeah.
1: yeah. I think I think right after it got created, somebody from Times Up did come to the National Neela Conference and, and put it out there. I think we all got trauma-informed advocacy training on the spot that day, which was cool. To to switch gears slightly, how has COVID impacted what what the organizations you're with do. Has it changed the nature of what you're seeing? Has it led to an uptick or down or, or drop in in what in, in volume? What what are you seeing?
2: Yeah, it's such a good question. It, it's so interesting. When, you know, now it's been going on a now it's been going on a minute, but but when this whole pandemic started, we were getting a lot of questions from from the press. I, I think well-intentioned questions, but asking us if this meant that we were not getting requests for legal help anymore. I think that there was this perception that maybe if we were not going into the office, if we were remote or something, then workplace sex harassment wouldn't be happening or maybe people wouldn't be wouldn't be seeking this kind of help. And that absolutely did not happen. I would say at at the very, very beginning, we had a little downturn in the number of requests for legal help that we were getting. And then it went right back up and it has stayed up at the same levels as as it has been from from the beginning. And and to give you all a sense of the numbers, I mean, I was telling you all this started in January 2018. So from January 2018 to the present, the fund has gotten more than 5,700 requests for legal help. So we are getting thousands and thousands and thousands and at a very steady rate of people reaching out to us, asking for this kind of help. And that has stayed absolutely constant through COVID. What I would say about COVID is... The, the ways that it is playing out have changed somewhat. I, I have been hearing from lawyers that, you know, harassers are, are getting kind of creative. Like I have been, you know, having people come to me with these situations involving harassment over video, right? Or, or over technology, right? And, and in a way, it, it's like it gets into your home if you think about it. Some of that has been really chilling to me because you can't escape it if, you know, you're in your bedroom. You're in your home, you're in your place where you might have ordinarily escaped. And the processor is there with you all the time, right? On all of your devices. So that's one thing. And um, the other thing is for I was telling you all our, our focus is on low-wage workers. So these folks, you know, the healthcare workers, the food service workers, the restaurant workers, all the frontline workers, like those people are not comfortably working remotely, like, you know like some of the professionals have been doing. So so for them, I think COVID just exacerbated everything.
1: So I think one or two last questions before we wrap up. So going off script a little bit to to what we had kind of gone over, you mentioned that number over 5,700 calls that you all have received. And I'm sure that's just a drop in the bucket to what actually happens. I mean, first of all, it's a wonderful service and it's connecting people to resources that never existed before. and, And this movement, you know, I I remember as you know as considering myself a civil rights lawyer for a while, I get questions. Well, how is me too affected things? So this is going to be another patented Max meandering lengthy compound question, but bear <laughs> with me, a terrible self editor. So you're mentioning close to six thousand calls that have come in, which is great because it probably I don't think that necessarily means an uptick in harassment, right? It means more people know there are resources and are getting that help. And we get these questions all the time about what impact Me Too has had on sex harassment or just litigating hostile work environment cases or abuse or harassment cases generally and how attitudes are changing. And then you see on the other side of things, this quote unquote backlash to woke culture or cancel culture. And I, I know we're mixing a few things, but basically people saying, oh, people are too sensitive, or you know, this and that. Do you do you feel in the aggregate things are getting better, that this is just getting people to the resources they need, that it's getting worse and the need is getting greater? Or it's just sort of now finally counting something that's always been there and just codifying what was already in place, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think that makes sense. I think that I do think you were saying that the the number of, of requests for legal help maybe is a drop in the bucket. I absolutely think it is a drop in the bucket, you know, because not everybody will know about us. Not everybody will, will feel empowered enough to, you know, reach out that day and ask for legal help. So I, I think it's reflective of how systemic the problem is, like, because we have gotten requests from people, like I was saying, all over the country, in every industry, you know, every demographic. But I think it is only... Only a drop in the bucket, I think that what has happened with me too is that it has it has raised awareness right and and maybe it has made people more able to put words to what they experienced or to identify it as wrong and feel empowered to speak out I, I keep having people maybe older people <laughs> tell me about how now they think back to things that happened to them you know earlier in their career and and realize that it was wrong and and didn't think about it in that way or didn't have the language to describe it so i think there's power in that the backlash and the cancel culture thing you know what i think i mean uh, we could talk about that one in a long time but i think you know when there's yeah. backlash it means that you're doing something yeah. you're doing something real yeah. you know yeah. so uh, it's it's well, it's almost like as a civil rights lawyer, like if there's backlash, like, okay, good. Like we must be, we must be doing something if you're starting to get scared and come up with these counter narratives.
0: As courtrooms and attorneys being more remote, has that, how has that impacted kind of your work? Has that made it easier to connect people to attorneys while maybe making it harder to deal with the legal process or something else? Hmm.
2: But that's an interesting question. I mean, you know, because I am talking to lawyers in the network and people applying for funding, I end up talking to people bringing these cases all over the country. So it's been an interesting window to hear what's been happening with the remote courts. Like it has just been absolutely different in every part of the country at different times. Like there's no uniformity to when the courts are deciding to do things remotely or open up or what they're going to do. I don't think it's made what we're doing harder. I think there's such this, I'm sure this is true in your state. This seems to be true everywhere. There was just such a backlog. So it's frustrating for folks. Yeah. Like already these fo- these cases can take so long. And that's just another reason that it you know, doesn't feel sometimes like you're getting justice. These cases can drag on as it is. And then all the delays have just made it drag on even more. So I think that's been that's been difficult. Maybe, I don't know, I, I don't want to say a, a silver lining, but almost a silver lining is that it has made it easier sometimes for people to connect to folks that they might not otherwise, right? Because it starts to seem more normal to reach out to somebody virtually that's far away, right? So I have had, you know, I've connected people to have conversations with folks that are in another part of the country and it's totally relevant but maybe they wouldn't have thought about doing it because the person is not where they are i I would say like as a as an advocate i've ended up talking to people in like very distant parts of the earth and and that didn't seem obvious to me before because i am a u.s lawyer but but now i have had all these really interesting conversations with people dealing with the same kinds of topics in other parts of the world and and it wasn't something that we were thinking about as much before this whole pandemic.
0: Yeah, that's been kind of my thought process. Like even this podcast, you're in DC, we're in Chicago, we're all in different places. I don't know if we would have done this pre-pandemic. So I do think some of that is a silver lining and all this, the ability to connect virtually is a lot easier. I, I feel like we'd still be using,
1: like when I had a long distance girlfriend in college, still using Skype and getting it on a dial up or ethernet on my laptop. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> brave, yeah. brave new world. Jennifer, uh, we really appreciate your time today. Is there anything you'd like to plug on any of the wonderful organizations that you've described today? Any projects that you have personally that you think are really important? Just anything that you think bears mentioned today beyond all the wonderful causes and initiatives that you've described?
2: Oh, well, thank you for asking me that. I I guess if I'm going to plug anything, it would just be to invite folks listening in to consider joining the Legal Network. We are really always looking for terrific new attorneys to join us. I am incredibly proud of the Legal Network. I I like to think about it as our gender justice army, that we are this team that together are, are trying to fight against these injustices in the workplace. And I love to bring in new people on to this team. And so if any of you all are interested, have questions about it, I am very, very happy to have people reach out to me directly and answer your questions. Otherwise, go on to the Law Center website. It's nwlc.org. And if you click on the part that says legal help, it will take you to all the parts that have to do with the Up Legal Defense Fund. And it's quite easy to join. So please think about it.
1: I'll second that. It's a pretty painless process. The trauma-informed advocacy trainings and other trainings that the, that the organization puts on are very informative and really helpful. And it's a really wonderful, it's, it, it really is very easy to sign up. I cannot emphasize enough people really, it's going to take you a few minutes and it, it's a wonderful cause and you can really do some good work for people. So please do consider it.
0: You want to spring our favorite question on it? Yeah. So we a- like to end our episodes with a shout out of the week. I gotcha. I gotcha. It's just, just a way to do something positive, gotcha. something to promote. We've had people shout out their children, books, TV shows, organizations, and I'm going to steal one from you actually. So prior to um, us recording, you mentioned a podcast that I'm going to binge after this, and I'm going to try to see if I can get the name right. Remy's Life Interrupted. You had mentioned your your kids listen to it. So I'm going to see what, I didn't realize kids listen to podcasts anymore, and that's super cool. So uh, I'm going to shout that out, but do you have a shout out of the week?
2: Oh, I love it. You're going to give me more points with my kids. If I I tell them that I was able to bring in Remy's Life Interrupted into this, they're going to think that that was great. That at least we talked about one interesting thing because that podcast they love. Shout outs. I love that question. Okay. I say so many, so many people that I could shout out to, but I will, I will shout out to all of the very many survivors who have been brave enough to reach out to us and take the step of trying to seek some justice for them. I am always so awed by the folks that I have gotten to be connected to in that way and have a shout out to them. And then maybe also this week, because I have this on my mind, all of the teachers and folks working, all schools trying to navigate through this pandemic, figure keep our kids safe and still going to school while keeping themselves safe. It's quite a tall order and I'm feeling really grateful for all of them.
0: No, that's, that's really awesome. I want to add in parents too. I think this has been a really tough time for parents to navigate through all this stuff, balancing everything, work, childcare, learning care, um, just figuring all this stuff out on the fly.
1: Jennifer, thank you so much for making time for us this evening. I encourage folks one more time to check out the show notes where all of the different websites, resources, organizations, and causes that Jennifer mentioned will be listed. Please check out the website for Time's Up Legal Network, the Legal Network for Gender Equity. I don't want to forget any of these. I'm the National Women's Law Center. And who did I forget? Everyone. Was that it? Did I get everybody? No,
0: you did good. That was right.
1: Yes. And then I ruined it by celebrating. Thank you so much again for coming
0: on. Please check out those Thank
1: resources. You. Please subscribe and share.
0: Our podcast is intended to provide general reviews of employment laws. The statements and opinions provided in this podcast are just that. The host's opinion. We are not your attorney. This podcast is not create an attorney-client relationship, and it's not intended to provide specific legal advice. For legal questions, please consult with an attorney.